if I said to you, I could help increase the length of your life of your pet by fixing one little thing, would you do it? And I'm going to say, everybody's going to say yes. You know, it's not just weight loss, it's quality of life, it's animal welfare as well. Hello, everyone. I'm Vet Times Editor Rachel Buzzle. And I'm Vet Times Editor James Westgate. And on what's shaping up to be the coldest night of the year, very warm welcome to Happy Hour. We've got another jam-packed power hour for you this evening. And we're going to be delving into the topic of nutrition and obesity. It's certainly a big subject. And to help us do that, we're delighted to be joined by Nicola Lakeman. Nicola is Head Medical Nurse at Plymouth Veterinary Group and has just completed her Master's Degree in Advanced Veterinary Nursing with the University of Glasgow. She has expertise in the fields of nutrition and nursing clinics and was the first VN in the UK to gain the veterinary technician speciality, VTS in nutrition, also a published author on this subject. Nicola will then be joined by Georgia Woodsley and Jessica Josie on the discussion panel. Georgia is a Royal Canning Weight Management Clinic Nurse at the University of Liverpool Small Animal Teaching Hospital, where she deals exclusively with obesity care and nutrition. She gained her certificate in canine and feline veterinary health nutrition in 2017 and her VTS in nutrition certificate in 2019. And we're going international tonight as Jessica, our third panellist, joins us all the way from Melbourne, Australia, where I believe it's about six o'clock in the morning. Jessica, so I hope you're bright and wide awake. Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. Jessica became one of the very few Australian veterinary nurse and technician registered veterinary nurses in 2019 and obtained accreditation in 2020. She created her website, nutritionrvn.com, to reach more pet owners and vet professionals, enabling them to learn more about animal nutrition and is studying for her VTS in nutrition. What a panel. My goodness, I cannot wait to get chatting with you all. Should we get started? I think that's a very good idea, Rachel. Nicola, welcome back. You're fast becoming a VN Happy Hour veteran. I hope you're feeling <laughs> ready for these questions. Uh, we've had a stack in. Um, it's a massive subject. So first of all, a nice simple one for you. Uh, but why do you think obesity in pets has become such a big problem in recent years? Well, it's, I'm going to say obesity is, is as much about behaviour as it is about nutrition. And Obviously, you know, a huge population ex expansion uh, with all these cats and dogs coming on board. So, yeah, we are going to see more. We've had lots of changes with lockdown and, and so on and so forth. So I know myself working from home. <laughs> you just walk to the fridge, don't you? <laughs> and you keep on eating. And I know myself um, when my partner's at home, um, he works at sea. But when he's here, the dogs put on weight. As soon as he goes back to see, they lose weight. So I think more people working from home doesn't help. You know, they look at you with such sad little eyes, don't they? And they just want those bits of food. So I think it is increasing. I think the favoritism in breeds sometimes, that, that alters, population changes alter as well. We're seeing more little dogs. Little dogs are more prevalent to putting on weight than, than larger breeds. It's, it's, it's so multifactorial. There's so many elements to that. Mm -hmm. And just from me on this, really, I mean, you mentioned the fact that there are so many um, so many pets have been bought, which would suggest to me there's a lot of new pet owners out there. I mean, maybe there's a lot of people who don't really get it. And as you say, they give them the yeah. big puppy dog eyes and they're straight to the fridge. And uh, yeah. 
and giving them what they want. Yeah, I think there's some amazing statistics to say this whole population explosion, these pandemic puppies. Don't forget our cats. There's been a bigger rise in cat numbers than there has in puppy numbers. Um, the majority of them are actually from first-time pet owners. So these are non-experienced pet owners. So I think you're completely right there, James. It's, it's, it's that not knowing as well. Hmm. And uh, well, it's nice to be right for a change, Nicholas. So thanks for that. But uh, um, second question: Would you agree that vet nurses have the most important role to play in tackling the problem? If so, why? I'm going to say no. I actually think everybody has a role to play in obesity. It's not just the vet nurses. We're part of the veterinary team. We're you know, it's a vet team. It's not just the vets on their own, the nurses on their own. Receptionists play a massive role in talking to clients. They really, really do. So everybody has has an important role to play. It's, it's not just the vet nurses. I'm going to say most of my clients that I see probably spend longer, more time talking to receptionists, talking to people on the phone, you know, telephonists and stuff than they actually do for that 15, 20 minute in the consult room you know, with, with me, I know things have changed a little bit. We don't have as many people sat in reception waiting around as they used to. But everybody has a really, really important role to play. And I guess those guys, the, the receptionist, front of house team, people on the phone, um, people are perhaps going to feel a little bit more um, relaxed about talking to them about some of these issues as well. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, my receptionist, the, the owner comes in. And say they're going to see the vet, it's the receptionists that weigh them. The weighing scales are out in reception. So it's a really good you know, opportunity for them to talk to them about weight and, and you know, body condition school whilst they're out in, in reception. Excellent. And um, like you say, it's a team effort. Um, hmm. but, but why are vet nurses in such a good position to help tackle, the, tackle this particular problem? Well, we obviously, in, in my practice, we have dedicated appointment slots purely to talk about obesity. You know, we have obesity clinics and, and so on. So, you know, it's a role that is delegated to nurses. And it's, you know, if I said to you, I could help increase the length of your life of your pet by fixing one little thing, would you do it? And I'm going to say, everybody's going to say yes. So, you know, if I can help you fix that one thing that will help your dog live longer, your cat live longer, you would do it. So, Nurses are in a really good position to really help, you know, it's not just weight loss, it's quality of life, it's well, animal welfare as well. Okay. And moving, I suppose, specifically away from just obesity, for the next question is, what have been some of the most significant advances in the world of pet nutrition during your career? Just a small question. There for you, <laughs> Feel free to expand on this one. Just a small question, because I've been in practice since 1994, so... <laughs> It's a really long time. Um, I'm going to say lots, so much has happened in, I don't know how long that is. That's like, that's a very long time, isn't it? So we've mapped the, the genome, the canine genome. So we now know certain nutrients upregulate and downregulate certain genes. That's a massive, massive thing. You know, we've got cardiac diets now with special, you know, um, mixtures of medium chain triglycerides that we now know uh, are the fuel sources for, you know, heart cells and brain cells. We can actually, you know, help 
you know, the progression of cardiac disease in some breeds of dogs. I think that's amazing. You know, these, these diets as well that can help reduce seizure activities in dogs. There's so, so many things that I'm going to say I've been practicing for so long. <laughs> it's probably a huge range <laughs> to go over. But I think that's where nutrition is so amazing. Just something you can eat can make such a difference to your, to your life and your health, which is amazing. Mm. And yeah, I guess something that some, um, in my case, uh, some of us humans probably should take on board a bit more. Yeah. Well. I be feeling so flat on a Thursday night um, <laughs> if I ate a little bit better, but I digress. Um, has the issue of pet obesity become more of um, has become more of a problem during lockdowns, and why is it just lots of new owners, and why don't uh, do they, who don't know what they're doing effectively. I mean, we touched on this earlier on, but uh, perhaps expand. Yeah, there's it's it's so much. It's so multifactorial, isn't it? It is, you know, people, you know, working from home. There's more availability of food. New owners, you know, nurses aren't able to to get in at, at ground zero. You know, how many puppy parties have been run during lockdown? We've been doing ours via Zoom, but it, it it's not quite the same. So these touch points where we know we can help prevent obesity, so post-neuter checks, um, all of those, we weren't allowed to do post-operative examinations during lockdown. Um, we could do them via Zoom and, you know, we got clients to send pictures in, but it just wasn't the same as getting those animals on the weighing scales and teaching owners how to do body condition schools. So those touch points that we had where we know we can help prevent obesity, reduce the prevalence of obesity, they they were sort of gone. They, they were wiped out almost. So we do need to sort of get back on board and really just really, really push all of those, those things again and just hopefully, you know, get the message through a lot more. Yeah, just get that, moment, that momentum going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sort of touching on that, moving on from that, what are some of your top tips for setting up a VN-led weight clinic? And what are the big do's and don'ts? I think some of the big do's is you're there to provide motivation to that client. And when you, I don't know if anyone listening here has, has actually gone on a diet themselves, it's really hard work. <laughs> it really, really is. It's horrible being on a calorie control diet. Just having someone there being your cheerleader and just, you know, promoting it and going, come on, you're doing really well. Anything like that. That's my number, number one top tip. And the way we provide that motivation is going to be very much dependent on that person. And there's loads of ways to do it. It's not just weighing the animal, it's measuring it. So I know myself, I will weigh the same, I know, on Monday one week compared to Monday the other week, but I might have lost a centimetre around my waist or something. And that's something we need to celebrate. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes you might not have lost some weight, but you haven't gained the weight. <laughs> to me, that's a positive. Yeah, so it's not just about what it says on the scales, it's about other things. Yeah. Um, it's about being healthy. Um, this is a really good question. We like this. I'm a young VN and no communicating issues around obesity can be really hard. Do you have any advice for me? Yeah, I get lots and lots of people say that they're, they're worried about talking to people about being overweight or obese when the owner is overweight or obese. But trust me, as someone that is overweight, um, I can really empathize with the pets, you know, and I'm going to say owners are going to be the same. They can really understand what it's like being overweight and how difficult it is. And they know how it feels. So there is a little bit of, 
you know, projection almost. But don't be afraid to talk to owners that are overweight. They actually, I find, more motivated than those that aren't because they they get it. They really do understand it. So if you're just starting off in your clinics and, you know, you're worried about that, don't be, really don't be. Mm, I mean, I guess you can understand why it's a bit of a sensitive subject, especially from someone just starting out in their career. Yeah. Um, Do you have any of this? I suppose we're all meeting virtually tonight. This is quite a topical question. Do you have any experience or or advice for running a virtual weight clinic? I mean, that's one way of reaching out, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been doing these throughout. We've been doing our puppy stuff online, um, all our post-operative exam, you know, everything we've been doing online as well. And actually I found it's been really useful for certain clinics, you know, those bladder cats and you want to have a nose around someone's house, you know, <laughs> they can be really good. You can, you can see where they put their litter tray, those mobility dogs, you can see that they've got a shiny floor that doesn't have a rug on it. So those things are really, really good. And I tend to find that people are a lot more relaxed when they're in their own home. You get a, a different client almost, by you know digital means than you do stood in front of you in 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 the clinic so they're a bit more relaxed and when you're doing things like obesity clinics you find out more you know they they tell you all those little nuggets of information that they maybe wouldn't have done in that more formal setting so it's i've found it's been really really useful Mm. i guess i mean maybe a tougher one to promote to people, I mean, how, have you got any advice around that? How you get the word out that these things can happen? Because yeah, a lot of the new millennials now, they're now the biggest pet owning segment. That's how they want to engage increasingly. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess there's a challenge there in just getting that message out that you're doing that. Yeah. Well, we've, we've done some research into this um, and we actually found it was weirdly more dog owners than cat owners wanted digital. And you would have thought it would have been the cat people. But it wasn't, it was more the dog people. And we actually found, yes, millennials did, you know, want the online sort of services. But actually, I think in the age group of 60 or over, it's something like 40% want digital as well. So don't forget, don't think, oh, that's an an older person that they wouldn't want that being offered to them when when they would. But we basically say to clients, um, you know, when they phone up for an, an nurse appointment, would you like, you know, an online or would you like in person? And, you know, we go from there, really. So don't forget the silver surfers. Yes. <laughs> um, what factors are important for recommending one type of food over another? And what are the benefits when it comes to preventing problems other than obesity? I mean, you touched on this before. I mean, obviously, with the cardio diets and some of the neuro diets available. Um, but I guess for trained veterinary professionals, you, you know, you speak that language for, you know, it can be more of a challenge to communicate the, the benefits um, to, to lay people and, and owners. Yes, I, I, I don't have a, a, a brand of food that I would, you know, go to. I, I think it's the same as pharmaceuticals. You know, you choose the food that's best for that patient that's in front of you. So it's very much taking that nutritional history. You know, do they prefer dry over wet over pouches? And some brands will only have it in a tin, whereas another brand might have the food, you know, like a a renal food in in chunks and gravy or something. So you really need to take a really good nutritional history and make your recommendation based on the animal that is in front of you. And I really do appreciate that in some veterinary practices that can be really difficult because it is sort of, 
almost dictated to them what what brands of food that they can use. Um, but I'm, I'm a big believer of, you know, we need to do what's best for that patient, really. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a real bespoke approach there when yeah. it comes to that yeah. sort of discussion. Um, how would you advise me as a VN to take the lead on nutrition in the practice? Again, that's... Uh, interesting when we we have that question come up quite a bit across different subjects you know just vn's taking the lead and i guess this is one that um a lot of our delegates um would feel quite strongly about but how would you what advice would you give someone who's really looking to maybe the one pushing this as much as they felt that they should be yeah so nurses are in a prime position to, to take the lead on nutrition to, to let's call it champion nutrition within in their practice i think that's really important so you know get to know your you know your, your food uh, the food company's rep and <laughs> just not harass them please don't harass go out and harass them but they're there to help you they're there to give you all the resources that you need and there's so many resources online that you can use as well so if you want to champion nutrition, you've got to have the underpinning knowledge there as well. So, you know, what we learn in our RVN qualifications is brilliant. But, you know, look at extending that. Look at doing certificates and CPD and, and so on. And again, it's very much about communication and working as part of the veterinary team. You're not going to do nutrition on your own. You have to be referred cases. You have to, you know, work as a team and, and go back and forth with the veterinary surgeon that's in charge of that case to, to you know, to, to do that. So it's a team thing. Um, I'm a big believer. I work in a very big practice and, you know, I, I like sharing knowledge. I don't like hoarding knowledge. We want to share it. We want everybody to take the lead on nutrition, not just one person in the practice, but you do need one person just to champion it and just keep reminding everybody every every now and then. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you've written numerous books on this subject, Nicola. I mean, it's a constantly, you can't, you don't just learn nutrition, walk away and that's it. No. I mean, there's stuff coming on, stuff yes. coming out all the time, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, right. And sort of touching on that, my clumsy segue into the next question um who has good resources i can refer clients to about diets for their new dog i mean obviously the the, the manufacturers have but what, what other um what other resources are out there that you can refer people to go away have a look have a think yeah so i like resources that are not brand specific so um, WSAVA has lots of resources um, and they've got links to things like the Pet Nutrition Alliance. So they've got fabulous stuff out there about what to look for in a diet and, and so on. You know, there's things like um, ISFMI Cat Care, loads of information about diets for cats as well. So that's really good. But if people really want to know about specific brands of foods and, and what's in it, yes, make sure that, you know, they're going to that that brands website but things like the pfma the pet food manufacturers association in the uk um, would be my go go to place for that obviously different countries have got different things so in america it'd be afco and, and so on and so forth so there's there are you know resources out there for people fantastic and your final question i'll let you off the hook after this one <laughs> uh, could, could you share some of your biggest success stories with obese patients to describe the sense of satisfaction you felt in helping clients achieve their goals oh it's a really difficult one and i'll let you into a little tiny tiny secret i don't i think i've probably over the last it, you know i've been working since 1994 um 
I'm going to say I've probably, I can count on maybe both hands the number of animals I've got to ideal body weight and stayed there. Mm-hmm. It's so, so few. Um, obesity isn't, you, you can't cure it. You don't go on the diet, become nice and thin and da-da, you're done. <laughs> it's something for life. It's a chronic medical condition, you know, disorder, whichever, you know, word you'd like you to use. It, you manage it forever. So I'm going to say some of my success ones are the ones that you know, I, I see them for, <laughs> it feels like forever. I do see them for years because we, we just keep going in all the time. And, you know, I'm weighing them monthly. And, you know, those are the ones that, that give you Christmas presents and <laughs> things like that. Um, so those, those are my, you know, big, big success ones. And I'm going to say some of the ones that I've been proudest of they're actually the ones that maybe haven't lost the biggest amount of weight. It's the situation that, you know, you know, it's a difficult situation, but they've tried so hard and they succeed, even if it's just losing, you know, a few kilos, you know, that really big, really old arthritic dog, you know, that's 12, 13 years of age and, you know, having huge mobility issues, just losing a kilo for that, you know, those dogs makes so much difference. You're never going to get it to its ideal body weight. You don't have enough time left, but just improving the quality of life of that animal is, is I'm going to say one of my biggest successes. And a a great place to leave it, Nicholas. So thank you very much for that. Um, Thank you. Fascinating (laughs) stuff. I think we're about ready for, the panel discussion. Okay, so I think we're ready to go into our panel discussion now. So, um, Jessica, we're coming over to you first. Hello again. Uh, hope you're doing okay <laughs> over there. Um, yeah. So, what is the best kind of low impact exercise for older obese pets with a client on a restricted budget? Yeah, I think um, I think that walking is really underrated. I think people think that it doesn't really do much. But if you're going on really sort of short, frequent walks, you can actually um, really improve both their mental and physical health. Um, and that does still provide some sort of uh, weight loss benefit. Um, the other thing that I recommend um, is you can make your own enrichment toys. There's a lot of ideas online, um, which is, you know, they're very cheap. You can use toilet rolls or, you know, cardboard boxes, things like that. Um, even towels, you know, wrapping kibble in towels, it still provides a bit more of um, that additional sort of having to work for their food. So even if you don't have a massive budget and it is an older pet that can't sort of run around or you can't throw a ball for them, they're still getting that activity that I suppose they wouldn't otherwise be getting. Wonderful. I really like the walking one because we all know the benefits of getting out there for a walk, don't we? It's a great mood as well as for the weight control as well. Yeah, and I, I guess from what you're saying there, Jess, as well, that, you know, it's about using your imagination a bit. I guess the, the, the question came in like that, as in on, on a restricted budget, but one would imagine that, you know, not having a lot of money shouldn't really impact on the kind of programs and, and exercise, low impact exercises you can get your pet to do. That's right. Excellent. Right. Georgia, um, question for you. Um, how do you keep owners on track and compliant with restrictive diets for their pets? Yeah, that old question of compliance, hey? (laughs) Um, So really for me, this starts in the groundwork. 
So this is all about um, getting to know your client, allowing your client to get to know you, having that real relationship with them. And so therefore, continuity plays a part in keeping good compliance because this is about the rapport and being the person that they come to if there's a problem. Because so often if people are running into problems and they don't feel they have a place to go or a person to ask, well, then things just kind of start slipping and they fall off the wagon. The other point with um, compliance is an owner's got to understand why they're doing something if they're actually going to go ahead and do it, especially if that's difficult. And of course, providing obesity care is difficult. Weight loss is difficult. So understanding the very good reasons for their pet also. So what in their pet are they going to improve? How is their health going to be better? All this adds to the compliance um, the other things, and sort of on a more practical level, it's seeing these patients and their owners frequently. Um, I tend to see mine every two weeks whenever possible because a lot can happen in even just two weeks. And again, if you're not there to solve those problems for you, you start get that starting to get that compliance slipping. Sometimes it's not the owner who brings the pet in that is the one struggling with compliance. So I would then be looking at a family consultation, potentially speaking to other pet owners, members of the household, trying to understand why they might be finding it difficult in particular. And then it's things like using food diaries, sort of trying to get everyone on board with filling out the diary, making sure nobody's double feeding, that treats are being kept to what's recommended. And finally, the, the, the last thing that I would do to try and keep compliance is reward them. So this is the pet owner now. Um, so giving certificates, you know, maybe giving if you have some toys, maybe or just something where you can mark stages along the way and say, look, you know, you've done some good already. This is amazing. Well done. Keep going. And I think it's that probably that I would say is most important um, for keeping good compliance is keep with them and um, see them frequently. Can that be a challenge, though? Just a thought, you know, once every two weeks. I mean, that's just for, for, for weight loss and obesity issues, is it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely it can be a challenge. I mean, lockdown has proven what a challenge that can be. Um, but contact doesn't necessarily have to be face to face. It can be online. It can be text, phone, email. There's lots of ways of dropping in and having contact. Cat owners especially are much less um, willing to bring their cats into the practice. Cats don't like traveling and all that sort of thing. So for them, if the cat is particularly upset, I'm not going to ask them to come every two weeks. We might then explore weighing at home a little bit more. Um, and certainly some dog owners will also be able to weigh at home. And so it's much more about keeping the updates coming in, keeping those little touches nice and regularly. But yes, it doesn't have to be very fixed to every two weeks you must turn up here. Yeah, and, and, and another, an area where the, the sort of sudden shift to digital it could impart massive benefits, couldn't it? Absolutely. It makes um, dropping in on people very easy, actually, mm. um, and far less time consuming. Um, I suppose where we are, and um, because it's a referral clinic, our referrals come from hours away sometimes. So they simply can't come that often. So being able to do it over Zoom means that we get much better contact with them um, and they can see me and we can you know, chat about what they were doing at the weekend and their holidays and all that sort of stuff, as well as um, whatever's going on with their pet. Great stuff. Um, over to you, Rachel. Thank you, James. So I'm coming back over to you, Jessica. Um, is fruit bad for dogs and cats and can it contribute to obesity? I 
would say no. Um, I think it actually sort of can have the opposite effect. So I think a lot of people get wrapped up in that fruit contains sugar. Um, Not all sugar immediately becomes fat. That's not necessarily how that works. What I tend to say to people is fruit is actually quite rich in moisture. When we add moisture into the diet, we're actually reducing the bulk of the diet. So um, you can actually increase fiber in that way as well. So fruit and vegetables mainly, if you remove a portion of their, if they're a dry fed pet, if you remove a portion of the dry food and you introduce fruit or a fresh vegetable or something like that, you're actually reducing the caloric density of that diet. So potentially you're actually reducing their weight um, or their food intake. So I would tend to go in the opposite direction that it may actually not contribute to obesity. It depends how you're using it, but usually no, because um, it's not sort of immediately becoming fat. Thank you. That's really interesting. So I, I think of fruit and automatically go to the, the sugar uh, that you mentioned. So yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you. Um, how would you just to, to I'm, I'm intrigued because it's the one thing if I'm ever eating fruit, particularly greedy husky, and she'll beg for pretty much everything. If it's a banana or an apple, she's not interested. How do you, what, in, in what form do you introduce fruit? Sorry if that's a layman's question, but I'm intrigued. No, um, I would say, yeah, generally as a like a treat or something like that. So instead of um, clients giving sort of high fat treats, I would say maybe give a carrot, maybe give an apple slice, maybe give something like that. It's more so generally the crunch that they like, not necessarily the actual flavor or anything. So that's why I tend to say you can feed something that's low calorie that's not necessarily going to have the same fat content, but it's still going to give them the same um, benefits or you know interest in that treat. Okay. My dogs love a carrot. Yeah. <laughs> this one's for you, Nicola. Um, what are your thoughts on raw diets for dogs? Can they help with controlling obesity? The, the problem with raw diets is that we don't have the evidence. There's The evidence base isn't there. So as a veterinary nurse, our code of professional conduct is the stuff we do is based around the evidence. So there's no evidence there to say one is better than the other. The problem with obesity is not what you eat, but a little bit more on how much you eat. And there was an amazing American, I cannot remember his name off the top of my head, who showed that you could lose weight purely by eating nothing but Twinkies, literally nothing but Twinkies. Just as long as you eat less, you take in more calories than you burn off, you will lose weight. So, you know... I'd imagine, Nicola. So, you know, if we if you're doing that and you've done all your all the mass and you've done your RERs and you calculated the amount that's there, the benefit of the veterinary diets is that they make you feel fuller. And I I, I tell clients this, I relate it to, to breakfast cereals. So if you eat your cocoa pops in the morning and you eat 200 calories of cocoa pops and you eat that at 7 a.m. I'm going to say by 7.25, I am hungry and I want something more to eat. If I eat 200 calories in porridge, that will keep me going until lunchtime. So as long as you eat less than you burn, you'll lose weight. But the nutrients that you can, that you take on board, they're there to help you feel fuller. So you don't feel miserable because we all know what it's like when you feel hungry, you feel miserable. And if you're like me and you're feeling miserable, you end up in the fridge, don't you? (laughs) So it's really important that, you know, we eat less than we burn off, 
but we're also, you know, getting a good balanced diet as well. So that's where veterinary diets come in because, you know, they're balanced for eating lower calories, but getting all the nutrients that you want, the right types of protein, the right types of fat, that's really important. And then all the vitamins and minerals that go alongside that. Yeah, and I guess with those diets, the, th- the thinking, the science has been done for you, and we all live increasingly busy lives. Yeah. We're talking about issues of nutrition tonight. but uh, I mean, the, the thing to remember with, with raw feeding is we don't know how the nutrients work when they're cooked and not cooked and everything. But as a veterinary nurse, it's in my code of conduct that I have to be aware of one health have to be aware of food safety as well. Um, We know that some dogs that are raw fed have um, bacteria in their stools that are antibiotic resistant, which is a huge, huge problem. So it's not just about nutrition. It's about food safety. It's about preserving our antibiotics. It's, It's a massive, massive subject. But we just need more and more studies. We need more and more evidence to know what, you know, what is best. Excellent. Over to you, Rachel. Well handled, by the way, Nicola. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, James. So I'm coming over to you, Georgia. Um, How much to reduce calorie intake for obese cats per 24 hours at the start of a diet for safe weight loss? Yeah, this is a really good question. And I think it's one that gets asked an awful lot because I'm assuming um, that what the question is referring to is the risk of causing hepatic lipidosis in cats when you put them on a restricted diet. Now, this is kind of entering into the sort of myths and urban legend kind of territory because there is actually no evidence to suggest that simply putting a cat on a restricted weight management diet will cause hepatic lipidosis. And actually, hepatic lipidosis is a very complex disease in its own right. Um, They believe that not only do you need almost, you either need complete anorexia or um, very low food intake coupled together with another disease of some sort. So another disease process going on in the background. And it's only the combination of those two things that actually ends up in hepatic lipidosis. Providing the cat is eating around 40% or more of its daily nutritional requirement, hepatic lipidosis doesn't happen. And if we think what we need to do for our um, patients with obesity, well, we typically will reduce calories by 30 to 50%. So we're not not really there on the under 40% at all, especially if we're you know, working out our um, feeding amounts properly and that sort of thing. So to answer the question more directly, there's no reason to stage weight loss in that way. There's no need to sort of sweep into it or, you know, reduce so much in the first 24 hours and then, you know, move down to the amount um, from the cat's point of view, from a, from a hepatic lipidosis point of view. And certainly from my own um, experience, the, the weight management clinic, we have been putting cats on the correct amount of food straight away for almost 17 years now. And I can um, speak, you know, clearly that we have never had any problems with hepatic lipidosis. And we're very careful, of course, to stay above that 40% threshold, but we wouldn't be restricting to that degree in any case. It just wouldn't be safe from a nutrient point of view um, for anything else. So I think from, sorry, to come back round again and answer the question, um, I wouldn't. I would go straight for the amounts um, and first 24 hours is going to be the same as next week. 
That's a great answer. Thank <laughs> you. And it's um, just something I was thinking about while you were talking. When it comes to cats, how do, how do you control an outdoor cat if they're going <laughs> out and they're getting fed by someone down the road? I mean, is there, I was just something that came to mind. Is there something, yeah. do you put a collar on them that says, please don't feed me? Is there, are there ways around it to help that? Yeah, they are. I mean, they're not always that effective. It really depends on the cats. Um, some of them are more persistent than others. So, yes, there are do not feed me collars. They're a great idea. Sometimes you can lie a little bit and put a I'm diabetic collar on because people might take more notice if they think they have a medical condition um, that could potentially work. I often talk to um, my pet owners about keeping the cat in at the times that they are likely to go and get other sources of food. So if the lovely lady next door puts food out at five o'clock, well, then let's keep the cat in until seven, you know, until that food is totally gone. You can, if you know where the sources of food are, go round to those houses and ask, look, please, I'm really trying to you know, improve the health of my cat. Please, could you not leave food or give food to that cat? Um, but yes. And then the other thing is that they can do is go out and, you know, kill small furries or small birds and, yeah. you know, supplement themselves like that. However, most cats that are, you know, that are well fed at home kill much more for um, from a behavioral point of view. Um, and it's it's sport, it's that sort of thing. And even if they do consume it, the energy expended is often offset by what they're eating. So that doesn't cause too much of a problem unless they're very prolific. And again, if they are, I'd be keeping them in at dawn and dusk when they're most likely to be hunting, putting a cowbell on their collar, make sure everyone hears them coming. So there are things that you can do. But yes, they can be a challenge, but then cats always are. Next question for mild. So we've talked about obesity and perhaps some of the, um, the the more extremes. But for mildly overweight patients, how can you best convey the benefits of being at a lower body weight to clients? That's for you, Jessica. Yeah, um, I think what Nicola said earlier um, was spot on. Just talking to them about the fact that this is going to extend their life. Um, we have research that shows if they're fed twenty five percent less food than their siblings, they live two years longer. That's that's the studies that we've seen coming out of the Purina Institute. Um, and I think if you, even though they may seem mildly overweight, I think you have to think about relative to body size. So what might be one kilo for us might not be a lot, but one kilo on a chihuahua is massive. So, you know, even that very, very small amount of weight loss is going to have a really, really big impact on their health. And I think when you explain that to clients that we're not looking at, you know, dropping half their body weight, we're only looking at dropping a very small amount. And if we can try and get them to reduce even the slightest amount, you'll see an improvement. Um, And a lot of the clients that I've had those discussions with later on, they've sort of gone, oh, we lost 300 grams, but he's running around. Like he never runs around. He's super excited. He's happy. He just looks a lot more vibrant. Um, even though it was such a small amount of weight loss, you know, I suppose in our eyes, um, that had a massive impact on that patient. So. Yeah, I guess it's all relevant, uh, all relative rather so much in life. Over to you, Rachel. Thank you, James. So I'm coming over to you, Nicola. Um, so how often should we do check-ins for, uh, with weight loss patients? Yeah, I think what Georgia said was was perfect. I tend to see them every couple of weeks. Um, but I in, in my initial obesity um, clinic with them, I asked them at the very beginning, how often can you, you know, can you come in? Yeah. Um, what's the best way for me to contact you? Are you happy to do some of this on phone? You know, all of these sort of things. You know, find out what works well for them because if you do what works for you, 
it might not work. You want to see what works for the owner um, and try and fit in around that. And it might be the case that they can only contact you on a Thursday evening and you might not work Thursday. So in, in my practice, I would hand that over just to someone else. You know, I want the best for that patient. So, yeah, we aim for every two weeks. Um, but again, it could be that we see them every other. So we'll see them once a month, but in between we'll phone them, we'll email them, you know, text them, you know, whichever, whatever works best for them really. So just keeping those lines of communication open. Yeah. And um, Georgia, that's another one for you kind of linked to a previous answer you've given actually. So we've talked about, you know, when do you commit the start? You gave your answer, but when do you start increasing the food amount to maintain a stable weight, prevent further weight loss? Yeah, so I suppose the first question is, when do we end weight loss? Um, And I I think, you know, on the face of it, it goes well when they're at their ideal weight. But actually, that isn't necessarily the case. And I think, Nicola, you touched on it, actually, that sometimes this is just about doing what's right for the individual, making them feel better. If you can only get a kilo off, but they've, you know, you've improved their health. Well, then wonderful. That's where we end the weight loss. The other thing that we should think about is when we have concurrent disease alongside obesity, and that is very frequent. And certainly the cases that I see around 80 percent of them have something else going on. And there is a theory um, being explored in people known as the obesity paradox that talks about in the face of progressive concurrent disease. So that's things like renal disease, cancer, cardiac disease. Patients tend to do better if they have a degree of obesity. And this is because they've got some reserves and these types of diseases tend to use up those reserves. And so survival and quality of life and that sort of thing is actually better if you have a little bit of left in reserve. The same has also been found in dogs. Um, and so it's a, it's a theory worth considering that for some, we might be wanting maybe just 15 or 20% of weight loss. No, they're not going to be at their ideal weight, but we shouldn't take them there either. They're going to need those reserves later on when their disease sadly is going to um, eventually progress. To answer the question maybe a little more directly about what we start to do in maintenance, once we've decided we have had enough weight loss, whether that's the owner's done or we've reached our points, we then need to start increasing the food. And what I would do is increase in increments of 5% and see what happens. So up 5%, weigh them in a couple of weeks, see if the weight's gone up or down. Depending on what's happened, we'll then increase it again. Um, maybe up to 10%. And typically in maintenance, the calorie amount is around 10% above what it was during weight loss. And on top of that is to weigh them really regularly during um, weight maintenance, because actually weight maintenance is harder than weight loss because this is forever. As Nicola said, you know, this there is no cure. There is no quick fix. They have got to be concentrating on this for the rest of this pet's life. So um, I think, yes, weighing regularly is the best way that they're going to stop weight gain if we can. I guess if you don't measure it, you can't control it. But over to you, Rachel. Thank you. Okay, this one's for you, Jessica. Uh, it's back to raw feeding. Um, if a dog is on a raw diet, how do you tackle this with obesity? Yeah, um, I think similar to, to Nicola, I'd, 
I mean, personally, I don't recommend raw diets. So if a client is on a raw diet, I generally start with a conversation about that. Um, I generally talk to them about if they're aware of the risks and if they are willing to switch to something that might be more suitable for that pet, um, whether that's a weight loss diet or something different. There are other options for raw diets, um, like a freshly cooked diet or um, a freeze-dried raw diet that may be um, less risky. So I generally talk to them about that first. And it's also a bit easier to control intake if they're on something like that that can be better measured. Um, with raw diets, the reason I tend to see obesity in these patients is more so from the organ meat. It's very high in fat. So I generally um, talk to them about that, that potentially if they don't want to switch, we might need to look at a different recipe. Um, one that isn't maybe so high in fat, um, something that may contain a little more fibre because generally raw diets contain a very, very low amount of fibre. So we may need to increase that and maybe reduce the organ meat and maybe just pick a recipe that's not as fatty. Um, but I think it's, it's again, like Nicola said, it is a lot to do with intake. Um, it's, again, you could eat whatever you like, but if you're eating too much of it, you're going to gain weight. So um, something that you can at least measure um, is usually the best way that I try and go with this. Okay. So again, communicating with that client, giving them their options. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And here's a good one for you, Nicola. Um, do you have any tips for stubborn clients who say they're doing everything you suggest, but their uh, their pet still isn't losing weight? It's, it's a tricky one because you can't turn around and call them a liar, can you? <laughs> you, you really, no, <laughs> you really can't. So, you know, things like keeping diaries, there's, you know, digital means, you know, I had one gentleman who was just, you know, a really lovely old man and he could barely walk. He, you know, he had crutches and, and real mobility issues, but he swore blind to me that he walked his dog eight miles a day. And mm -hmm, I was like, mm, okay. Uh, so I said, show me on the map where you walk. And he showed me and I was like, hmm. 800 meters tops so, <laughs> so they're not necessarily trying to deceive you or not tell you the truth but people's perceptions of how much food they feed or how much exercise they they do is is very very different it really really is so these digital apps you can get to monitor you know how far you've walked or how far the you know gps trackers on pet scholars to see how much they're moving you know that they're going to tell you the, the real story. Um, but, you know, there's lots of little things we can do like that. Just getting people to record things can be easier. But sometimes when it comes to losing weight, and we know in people for losing weight, if you really, really, really want to do it, then you will. If you're sort of half-hearted, not too sure, I know this one you know, back, back in the early, like I say, late 90s when I gave up smoking, you're only going to give up if you really want to. And I did. But and it, it's the same with anyone when you want to give up something or you want to change your habit or something, you've really got to want to do it. And I will say to clients when it comes to weight loss for their pets, are you, you know, are you 100% committed to this? And if they say to me, oh, I'm moving house next week, or I'm about to have a baby, or, you know, you know, some big life event like that, sometimes it might be easier just to postpone starting the diet until after they 
got over that hurdle. And then we can hit it full, full force, you know, when they are mentally prepared to do it, you're more likely to succeed. If then if they're not likely to succeed, then in you fall at the first hurdle, then they're less likely to pick up again and carry on. So don't just let them walk out the room and, and do nothing. Timetable it, put it in the calendar. Six weeks' time, I'm phoning you and we're going to get going. So there's, there, yes, there are things that we can do. I mean, it's everything. Um, over to you, Rachel. Thank you. Uh, coming back over to you, Georgia, it's quite similar to the raw feeding question we had with Jessica, but it's um, any advice on formulating raw food diets for weight loss programmes? Yeah, sure. And I think um, reading this question, what I wanted to touch on, first of all, is formulating for weight loss full stop is actually really difficult. So to be able to restrict the calories, but to be able to have enough nutrients in there, the margins are actually pretty small, even with the you know specialist weight management foods that we have out there. The margins get even smaller if we're using the wrong types of foods. So trying to use something like a light diet instead um, of a weight management diet to reduce foods, we, we know we get nutrient deficiencies after a few weeks of doing that. So nutrient deficiency is a real risk. Then we think about raw foods and the problems that we know we have with it. So as Nicola has already said, we first of all worry about pathogen risk, um, both to the pet and to the owner and anyone else who comes in, in contact with that pet. And then we have um, nutrient deficiency risks also. So I think coupled together with that, plus the you know lack of evidence and lack of knowledge that we have on those types of diets, I really personally feel that ethically I could not either attempt to formulate, ask you know to uh, you know a raw diet for weight loss. If an owner was very very set on wanting to feed this type of diet, we have to work with them. We can't just send them back out the door. We have to try and help them the best we can. And so my advice here is to ask a, a veterinary clinical nutritionist to um, formulate that diet for them. But I know that even the clinical nutritionists will say to them, if nothing else, please, can you try and cook these ingredients? Because the pathogen risk is so high um, and such a concern. Yes, we can balance a raw diet, but we can't get rid of that pathogen risk, even with really high levels of hygiene and that sort of thing. The only other possibility, and I don't think one exists, and please someone correct me if I'm wrong, is as Jessica touched on, actually, some of the commercially manufactured raw foods are going to add a, another layer of safety for us for using those types of diets. It's not foolproof. And certainly we still see pathogen problems with those commercial diets, but it is an extra layer of safety that could be added. So I don't believe there is currently one being made for weight loss specifically, but that is you know, potentially an area that you could explore with a pet owner. But for me, as far as formulating a raw diet, I would be asking the nutrition, the clinical veterinary nutritionist to do this for me. Great stuff. Right. We're, we're kind of actually running out of time, which is good and a bad thing because the, the chat's been brilliant. You guys have been amazing. Quick one for you before Rachel comes to finish off with the final question. Just, um, we know this is a massive issue in the UK because we are here in the UK, and it's 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 been some uh, been, been some fascinating conversation around this subject. But is it as big a thing in Australia, and is there as uh, as, as as much emphasis put on it out there, Jessica? 
Um, I think it's growing. I think it was uh, particularly obesity. If we just look at obesity, that um, has definitely probably in the last five to six years, I think, really become a focus um, in a lot of clinics and for, you know, for clients as well. Um, I think clients are a lot more aware that um, obesity is such a problem and they are a bit more receptive to when we have those discussions with them. There have been a lot of campaigns as well, um, both on TV and in clinic, that um, I think have improved that awareness as well. But if we just look at nutrition from, I, I only started in the industry 10 years ago. And just in those 10 years, I think it's really gone like really, really, really popular um, just over those last 10 years. So I think now um, I feel like I'm having a lot more sort of high level discussion with clients than I would have five years or even two years ago. Um, I think they're a lot more, um, knowledgeable about it and they're also wanting to ask us a lot of questions they're a lot more confident to reach out to us and want our opinion on things as well fantastic and rachel is going to ask this okay. question but i just warn you guys you've got 30 seconds yeah it's a, it's a quick quick fire round um so what would be your one take-home message for our delegates to help them help clients manage the weight of their pets and maintaining healthy nutrition so jessica we'll come to you first um, yeah, I think my main take home is is just think of it as a healthy swap rather than a diet. I think clients, as soon as they hear the word diet, they panic and they think, oh my God, my pet's going to be begging. They're going to be crying for food all the time and they're going to be hungry. When I talk to clients, I say, if we just swap this out with something that will be more beneficial to your pet, I think that um, really gets over that sort of stress about I'm going to have to put my pet on a diet. Wonderful. Georgia? Oh, mine's very simple. Weigh them, weigh them, weigh them again. <laughs> That's it for me. Good answer. Brilliant. And Nicola? Um, I would say get to know the client, get to know the pet, because if you know them and you know the pet, you can identify the potential hurdles, the potential pitfalls and, and stuff. So understand them, see where they're coming from, and then you can head off the problem before it actually starts. Fantastic. You guys have been amazing. Thank you all so much. A lot of you said you wanted CPD and this is CPD. The panel and the interview you just heard was top quality, unbiased CPD from across the globe. 